I would love. All right. We should be live. Is that where you're going to sit? Because you're like close to the side. Which way do you want to go? Where's Which where way? are you going to be? Like in the middle of the. There. I, I am. I am in the center, according to my camera. Yeah, that's fine. Just you know, well, well, we got a split screen. You know, just oh, be careful. Yeah, I'll, st I'll stay central. I'll stay here. Yeah, no, it's just like just not a lot of this is all I'm asking. Oh, you don't want me to do any of this? Yeah, or, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Later on, I can full screen. Okay. I can do a lot of that. But um, hey, everyone, I'm talking to Dr. Ian O'Neill, uh, just one of my friends, and Hi, uh, we're going to talk about space. We have we have no real agenda today. Um, none. And no plan. No, we have no plan, but I... And, I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> yeah, uh, but I know that we're... So I wanted to give this a chance to, uh, to for people to ask, if they had a bunch of questions about space and astronomy, Ian and I would love to tackle them. Uh, you know something that's going to happen on April 10th. And now, you know, the, pu the public relations has been, has been put out there. Um, yeah, yeah. Big day today, big announcement. There's something coming on April 10th. Yeah, the European Southern Observatory has said that it's going to be, they're going to announce the findings from the Event Horizon Telescope. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's going to be a big day, and I'm going to, what time is it? It's, uh, I, I have a problem converting European time with our time. I think it's probably like early hours in the morning for us. Uh, yeah, I don't, let me see what, what they said. Because <clears throat> it might be worth getting up early for. That's my problem. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really? not a morning person. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> 1500 european time uh, that must yeah that must be like six or seven o'clock right in the, in the morning, morning yeah 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 pacific time anyway yeah yep who are yeah. you what do you do well i am technically well i call myself a science communicator now um but i've had many um uh, iterations in my career i'd say it's going from what blogger with you mm -hmm. that was that was a long time ago fraser we're I talking know. like 10 12 years I started to be universe today, I think it was. Yeah, uh, yeah or actually 11 years, because it was uh, 2008, I think, was my first universe today article. I'm trying to remember, like, what was the American Astronomical Society meeting that we went to? And it was around, it was the one in LA. That was, that was Long Beach, yes. Yeah. So that yeah. was uh, 2009, I 2009, think it was. 2009, yeah. Yeah, that was yeah. just before I started with Discovery News. So, yeah, I started with you around about uh, 2007 when yeah. I was fresh toing and froming between the UK and US and uh, yeah and then uh, of course we had a good couple of years with University and then I started working with Discovery News and that went on for another eight years until they canned the entire newsroom all at once. No bitter feelings here no. but then of course I launched into this wonderful freelance career of writing again. Now I just do uh, technical writing, um, I do some writing for HowStuffWorks.com, I've got a regular um, space column i want to say there um also i write for my own website astroengine.com a little bit less frequently uh but I'm, i've been doing some projects all around the world this is so nice now to be freelance and actually speak to all these new people around the world who are interested in science and uh, i've been doing a lot of work in canada as well between university of waterloo and the perimeter institute and uh, vancouver with triumph basically a little cern in, in your neighborhood yep. um yeah it's, it's been it's been an interesting couple of years actually since leaving discovery yeah. Um, so, and I wanted to, Ian was like, what are we going to talk about? And honestly, I, like, it is D 
dealer's choice. We will let, you know, if you've got some questions that you want to bring up with us, I know a lot of the times I kind of completely hog the conversation. I'm too busy interviewing the person that I'm, that I'm talking to, but this is a nice, we've got, we've got an hour. Uh, Ian's yeah. got a, one of the deepest knowledges of what's going on in space and astronomy. Although do you find more recently um, you're starting to lose some of that really up-to-date knowledge because you're not, trolling mm -hmm. through it as quickly as as you used to yeah because uh, especially when i was with uh with discovery that was a daily yeah. uh, grind i mean it was it was wonderful because i got to Im immerse myself in in science <clears throat> and uh, sp specifically space science and every single day we we're putting out news items we we're on the news feeds we had interviews with scientists we were on on you know all the, the nasa news or the european space agency news everything that was going on I, I just think back to those days and they were wonderful days but they were exhausting days um so now i'm kind of a little bit less connected but then again it gives me some time to work on bigger projects because now i'm not like stifled by the day-to-day -day, i can actually start thinking about doing pr releases and stuff so like with the university of waterloo for instance they've got a scientist who's working with the uh, event horizon telescope and uh, they wanted to have um, some press releases and they wanted to have an astrophysicist because of course my background is solar physics uh not too far away from black hole physics i don't think you know it's just a an iterative step um, on the uh, stellar evolution line um and they wanted an astrophysicist to write these PR releases. So I wrote a, a really cool release for them a couple of months ago. If you remember, there was a um, observation by the gravity instrument in by the European Southern Observatory's VLT. Uh, they detected a flare around our supermassive black hole in the center of our, right. uh, our galaxy. <clears throat> and it just so happened that the University of Waterloo, they worked on a lot of the theoretical stuff that went behind that like a decade ago. I mean, there's a whole bunch of scientists who are on it, but it's just that the, they reached out to me and said, look, can you make this sound really cool? And I said, yeah, I can certainly, you know, black hole physics is, uh, is very cool. So it's like, yeah, sure, I can do that. And so I've been asked back this time to write for um, their release of the Event Horizon Telescope, big announcement on uh, April 10th. Um, so yeah, it's kind of exciting times in, yeah. in space. I mean, we're at this crossroads of incredible science advances, like we've got gravitational waves, the discovery of the Higgs boson. I mean, all these things I never thought I'd ever report on. And now we've got the something to do with uh, the black hole the, you know, in the center of the galaxy <laughs> you... somewhere, not necessarily here. <laughs> yeah, we've got to be really careful because yeah. you have knowledge, because you worked on a press release, you have knowledge yeah. that you're not allowed to talk to until uh, 1500 Central European Standard Time on April 10th, 2019. Yeah. And I actually I just... knew that it was going to be April 10th, 2019. I've known that for about a week yeah. or so. Because uh, that was the rumor running through the through the astro community, but I didn't actually know. So everybody who's been asking me, literally, I get this question on almost a daily basis. Now we know. Um, so now, now I can see some questions um, that are relating to this. Um, so you can, uh, you're gonna have to dance around it very carefully. But I, I think you, can, yeah. I think you can pull this off. I, I think now, I think this is the big difference because, of course, you know, we're in news media, or you know, I'm kind of like between news media and press releases, which is a kind of weird, weird world to be in. Because yeah. of course, um, the media gets advanced um, notice of like big releases under yeah. an embargo, a media embargo. And so I used to be able to speak to you about an embargo thing. So it was like the secret club where we could have this you know, discussion about this you know, top secret thing that's gonna release in, in the near future to the public. 
Um, but now, of course, with PR stuff, it's like the, the only people I can communicate with are the people who are actually hiring me to do that job. Um, so it's kind of like, oh, I want to talk about it. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a nightmare, but it's, it's fun, though. It's, it's nice. It's, an, it's a different kind of structure as well, because it's not like reporting. So, you know, I'm not a journalist. I'm not a trained journalist, but I've done a lot of science journalism over the years. And it's not like that. You basically got to, you know, big up the contributions of that institution. And in the back of my mind, I've got the journalistic kind of like balance um, thing in my head. I have to turn it off. You know, I don't need to get a second opinion. I don't need to speak to two other people about this research because ultimately it's the institution that is releasing this, this embargo news. And of course, I know about it pre-embargo. And there's loads of other institutions around the world who are also involved doing their own little thing. And so it's all going to come together in the end to a wonderful party on April 10th. So, uh, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be an interesting week next week. Yeah. But just like just stop asking me now. Now you have your date, April 10th. And that's actually not bad when you think like like they kept saying spring 2019 and spring 2019 started on the 23rd of March. So yeah. that's within I even you know mentioned that that you know once you hit once they hit spring the countdown was on. Right and it's funny because we because uh, I'm also an editor for um the Astronomical Society of the Pacific's Mercury magazine. Um they're based in San Francisco so I do like a quarterly member magazine and it was exactly this time last year I think it was the spring edition um 2018 where we thought they were going to release something and there were rumors flying around that they were going to release something and i was in contact with all my contacts saying you know when's it going to happen they said well we can't actually tell you and they are being very cloak and dagger i mean <clears throat> I, i'm surprised there hasn't been a release or anything because like if you remember the higgs boson discovery that was so leaky running up to the yeah. event it was like you know those occasional scientists would like say something inappropriate on twitter and we'd all jump on it and then report on that as news um and gravitational wave discovery a little bit as well but this one has been very tight yeah. and considering the, it's a global collaboration I'm yeah kind of i mean i think you know the kilanova one actually yeah. caught me by surprise mm. so i you know on the day that it was announced even though there was like more astronomers working in collaboration on that project than than almost any scientific project in human history right um, and yet uh, i but but i mean you know i do i purposefully ignore all um uh embargoes so so i anytime someone tries to tell me something embargoed i tell them tell me after it's been announced to the public hey that's kind of a cool policy to have because i've gotten kind of lazy because you know with discovery we always had to release on the day that the embargo gets released um, so we kind of got in the habit of reporting well ahead of time, again, all our ducks in a row. I mean, this is the whole reason why they have embargoes is because yeah. you want everybody to have a fair chance to get prepared, get all their interviews in, get their articles ready, especially with historic announcements. Yeah. Um, and I think it's a cool thing. I mean, there's a debate that perhaps we don't need embargoes, but then again, I think it serves a purpose. And, and that's kind of cool that you decide not to. Actually... Well, the reason I did it was because embargo was being used as a hammer to control right. who was a journalist and who wasn't. Yeah. So um, Emily Lakdawalla from the Planetary Society said that she couldn't get access to an embargoed paper because mm -hmm. she wasn't a real – because they had said she wasn't a real journalist. Right. And to say that Emily Lakdawalla isn't a real journalist is ridiculous, people, yeah. right? This She's like so the best – one of the best journalists out there. So yeah. – and I heard, and then that sort of set up a conversation with a bunch of people talking about this. And I'm like, and I just said, like, that's it. I'm out. 
Like, mm-hmm. like even though I have journalist credentials for a lot of this stuff, I'm not going to play a part of this game. So I wasn't going to break embargoes, but I'm not going to listen until it's publicly available. And that yeah. way it would put me on an equal footing with all the rest, my team on an equal footing with everybody, with everybody else who would get the news afterwards. And that was, you know, drove a few of my team a little crazy because they knew there was big news stories going on that I said, you're not allowed to, not allowed to spend a second thinking about it until after the news is out. But I right. think that it made us a better team overall. And it made, uh, and I, I hope that it was able to push back and sort of widen that. And I don't think embargoed stories are used to control people. Like bloggers are seen as legit journalists now when they oh, weren't, when I took that stand, I don't know, like eight years ago or something. Yeah, because I, I remember when, um, I mean, that's why I love the style of university and that's why I love writing for for your, for your publication because it was always very much on, not on the seat of your pants, but it was like, you know, we were able to react very quickly to news. And so like when we went to um, the AAS conference in, in 2009, we, I think I remember we were going around all the like the, the poster sessions, we were running around all the, the meetings, we were trying to work out very quickly which stories would fly really well, would, yeah. would really resonate with our university readers. And I remember that being such a freeing experience. And I remember vividly when you were able to corner uh, a scientist who would who had just just made an announcement saying a brown dwarf is most likely this color and you managed to get the hexadecimal color and yeah. that became the story yeah and it was and literally you turned it around in like 30 minutes and it was online straight away and yeah. it was like holy cow that's quick and it's really exhilarating because yeah. especially when you're on the ground at these events and it's a very good um talent to have because i mean since i mean i learned all my best writing of course from your friends yeah so, of course of course so of course i took that into into discovery news and i would make a point of not if i couldn't make it to to the conferences i would i would just have a look at all the press releases and often it was the lesser known yeah items that were most interesting and they were often the ones from small institutions who didn't have the big press releases they weren't harvard they weren't all the big ones that you do the whole you know books full of all the information that you could ever want about end research often they were a postdoctorate or even phd student who were doing incredible stuff but they didn't get a look in because they weren't with a big institution but i didn't yeah. make their science any smaller than these big institutions but i felt it was kind of our opportunity to give those scientists a voice and that's where blogging really comes in yeah and i think that that i mean you've got these two things coming together right you've got people who are sort of raised on the same science fiction future that we were who are, mm-hmm. who have now followed that through to their career i mean you you're an astrophysicist but but they you know, they were raised on Star Trek, went to university, want to find life around other planets. They want to send humans to Mars. They've got all these really ambitious ideas that haven't been sort of beaten out of them yet. Right. Um, and yet they don't have necessarily the the tenure and they don't have the, the credentials so that the public relations person at their university is going to be able to take the time to go and figure out what it is that they've done and translate it and write a press release. And, you know, it's a very complicated process. And so you yeah. get all of these all these really interesting ideas and really interesting stories that nobody ever covers. Everybody is grinding through the same stuff. 
every day. And if you go, you know, even today, if you go and look at the the, the news that has broken today, you're going to see say, maybe five or six major stories. They all have a source that comes from NASA or the European Space Agency or whatever. And everyone is rewriting press releases, and that's fine. But it's yeah. important to to go after the the stories that you can get the scoop on. And actually, like a lot of the stuff, like I hope that people, when they see my YouTube videos, they're seeing me do that, right? Is that I'm going after missions that they've probably not heard of. I'm going after ideas that, that they haven't heard much about, or I'm telling them missions that are, you know, 10 years, 15 years in advance that, that are still just in the planning stages, but are, will sort of tickle your imagination. I think that's where we, that's where I'm most, I'm most excited and interested in following my curiosity. So. Yeah, exactly. And, and when you're an editor or a publisher, you have to be aware of that as well to give a good breadth of coverage of all things that are interesting. I mean, ultimately, you know, the, if people don't read our stuff, we're not going to survive as an outfit. So that was one thing I learned very quickly, especially with, with the universe today was, you know, we want to generate interest and traffic and buzz around, around these topics. And often it's not even, you know, lesser known stories. It's having your own voice. And I think some of the best science communicators in our business, especially in space science, because space science is, um, you know, astronomy is a like gateway to, to a whole world of incredible things. And it's a very easy thing to digest. Um, apart from, you know, black hole science and stuff, you know, it's kind of a little bit more, yeah. a little bit more crazy when you get into the, into the weeds of astrophysics, but generally it's a very accessible science and it's very inspirational. And, uh, to have to find that your own voice and how you communicate that is very important. So even if you are all reporting on the same story, find a different hook or find a different perspective and have your own wit and your own opinion, especially if you're writing blogs. I mean, why not? Why are people coming to your blog over CNN or the, you know, the Washington Post or whatever? Well, they're coming to you because they want your personality. So there's a lot of competition out there, so you need to stand out. And that's one of the big take-homes I've realized with science communication in general. If you don't have a style, if you don't have that voice, and if you're just copying press releases and you're just regurgitating what other people are saying, you're not going to really make it. And you're not going to become, you're not going to add value to that story. And I think it's our mission as humans is to, to express this incredible story about human exploration in our universe. Because all the politics and all the all crap to one side we are doing incredible things and we're at the most incredible phase in science especially with space science i mean we've got like satellites orbiting asteroids where we got you know we're looking into a black hole somewhere in some galaxy we're looking at you know we just had the first direct imaging of a of a um uh, was it a super earth or something uh, it was an exoplanet with a very turbulent atmosphere oh yeah, the yeah experiment in the eso and i was like wow this stuff is incredible we want to need we need to communicate this with the world so yeah i, I think you need to find your own voice you need to find the lesser known stories you need to find your own hooks so yeah I, that's the only part if i was giving advice about becoming yeah. a science communicator i'd probably give those three things arjon asks as an astrophysicist astrophysicist uh, what made you interested in journalism versus straight research? So why are you a journalist and not a scientist? Um, I fell into it. <laughs> it. It wasn't my it wasn't my goal. Um, it, to be all, to be full disclosure here, I actually failed English in school. So really, writing oh, wasn't going to be my my strong point. Um, 
I was also very bad at math as well. So really, I, I chose two real bad, <laughs> bad topics to follow up. But um, I fell into science writing in particular because I met my wife in Hawaii. My research group was based, half of it was based in Wales, very wet, rainy Wales. The other half was based in Hawaii, in Honolulu. So you couldn't get two <laughs> different research groups. And it just happens in my final uh, couple of months of finishing off my PhD, I had the opportunity to work in um, Hawaii for a week. And that's when I met my wife. She's not, she doesn't have anything to do with space or anything. She's actually a real estate agent. So there's no way we would have met in normal life. And she actually comes from Los Angeles. And so basically I was a poor student back then. So I had to try and afford, well, did my uh, yeah, your camera, camera turned off? Oh, that's peculiar. Let's try that. Back. It didn't like what I had to say. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> uh, my wife was like, no, you're You're embargoed. Off. Yeah, you're done. You've spoken too much. Um, so yeah, I met my wife in Hawaii, and I decided that you know after my PhD, I was very footloose. So it was like, hey, life in America. Let's see how this goes. But of course, to fly backwards and forwards when I was working on my visa was very expensive, and so out of necessity, I had to find work that I could do from home or wherever I was in the world. I could do it remotely. And it somehow led on my experiences as an astrophysicist. And by that point, I'd written a thesis, so I wasn't completely you know, illiterate. But it, I, I, I had to develop my skill as a blogger. And you helped with me a big time with that because immediately I reached out to you, I think it was a period of two, it must have been 2007, early 2007, because uh, I was trying to look for work. And I think I reached out to you because I always read the University Today. And you said, hey, actually, we're taking on writers. So uh, would, you like a, would you like a gig? And you kind of taught me how to blog, and I was writing so much, um, so many blogs, and it was just really trial by fire because I had to earn money to or afford my flights, um, but I didn't have any writing experience as such, and it was a necessity that I had to start writing, and then I started loving it, and I tried to find research work uh, here in California, you know, the sunny state. I thought there would be an infinite amount of funding for a solar physicist. Uh, but of course there wasn't. So I couldn't find a research position. There were a few opportunities, but nothing really came to fruition. And I was like, well, okay, I'm getting pretty good at this writing thing. Let's um, persevere with this. And then a couple of years later, I got picked up by Discovery News and I was their uh, space producer for eight years. Yeah. So um, yeah, so that it was an interesting road. Um, and I would say that a lot of science communicators have got a similar kind of story. Like they didn't intend, you know, doing go to school saying, I want to be a science communicator. They just kind of fell into this position, this role as a communicator, and perhaps they found it through blogging or doing journalism or whatever. So yeah, it was an interesting journey. I'm, you know, I'm seeing sort of a, a similar theme though with a, with a, some other people like um, where, I think before there was the, the the modern age of science journalism, the way we have it today, and sort of all the different outlets and venues that you can do, um, people were kind of stuck into a research path. And right. for whatever reason, if research isn't for you, if you don't have the brain for it, or if you don't like the social structure and the way the academic situation functions, mm -hmm. or and you don't want to just spend all your time begging for money to get research grants, right. then you, um, you, you didn't have a lot of options. And now I think you do. So I actually, and I, I, I'm starting to see people who are going to university, they're getting the underlying 
sort of credibility from the research side, but then they're going into journalism. They're doing that faster. And so they're planning this. And so right. they're getting a, to be a perfectly credentialed person who really knows their science, but now they're going and becoming journalists. And, you know, I, I don't, I don't hold a candle to that. You know, my, my degree is in computer science. So, um, you know, when it, if, if we're going to really come down to an astrophysics battle, I'll lose every time. So I think it's, I think it's a pretty, uh, I'm really glad, I'm really grateful that, I mean, even if you're a PhD grad student, normally they don't have a lot of options for making money on the side, but now there actually are a lot of writing gigs that you can get and learn to be a science communicator that'll make your research work and grant money work better at the same time. Yeah. Um, Arjun also asks, have you ever thought about writing a book? What would it be about? Funny. Yes. Yeah. yeah. I'm actually in the process of writing a science communication book <laughs> of all things like a handbook. Cause I, one of my collaborators, cause I was asked to write, um, the five-year plan for Triumph. And Triumph is uh, the is Canada's particle acceleration center. So they've got this really big um, cyclotron. Fraser, your, your lights probably dim down every time they turn it on. Yeah, it's just, yeah. It's, it's right next door to you. Um, so yeah, oh, it's gone again. You did it go. again. Yeah, yeah. it's peculiar. Um, and I was asked to write there, well, I was asked to write a portion of their uh, five-year plan because in Canada, there's like five-year cycles of funding to, to put towards the government private funding. And uh, in the last few years, they've had um, scientists write the five-year plan, which is no big problem. But unfortunately, the, the five-year plan then kind of reads like a journal and they didn't want it this time. So they asked two science communicators, two science writers to come on board with their Triumph team. And I wrote their implementation plan. So it was about a hundred page um, book. And it was a real eye-opener as to um, uh, how, how this kind of, this could work for my, my career. So I was like, okay, well, technical writing isn't necessarily, because it kind of reminded me a lot of when I wrote my thesis, but then again, I kind of, I kind of approached the technical writing um, from a, my experience as a, as a science writer now, as a science communicator, and it kind of inspired me to perhaps do more. And um, uh, Lisa, the, 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 um, the strategic communicator who was at Triumph, she's now left and moved on, she's got a freelance career as well, um, she uh, she asked me if I wanted to co-write a book because she kind of wants to go. She wants to come from her um, uh, like industrial background because uh, she's a professional uh, communicator, strategic communicator. I, I don't know what the, the correct term is, but she's actually trained in that area. And she wanted to work with me because I come from like a science background and kind of gone into science communication. So we're coming at it from two different ways. And so we're going to co-write a, a book. It's going to be a science handbook, science communications handbook. And it's going to be a useful book. I haven't read many other science books that I actually want to pick up and read, like science communication books that I want to actually um, divulge. And I, it was like, well, I wanted to also come at it from like a space background because a lot of science communication books don't do that. They don't come from a, like a world of experience. Yeah. Um, so, so we're going to see where it goes. I, mean, I think it's a great um, idea. Yeah, I yeah. think so. And and I, I do want to get in the field of uh, of um, writing a book and also science fiction. That's where. That's where all our passions came from. Yeah, it was, it's a beautiful book. Yeah. Beautiful book. Yeah. Love that book. I've got it on my shelf. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm getting jealous of you guys all writing these books. Yeah, so exactly. I really should get around to doing it. <laughs> it's really the, the short answer to, to my long one. <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, no, I think it's a great idea though, right? Like a like a book about about the history of science communication and how it's being done in the modern age. Yeah. <clears throat> so kind of like, but also ways for people who may want to choose that as a career, but also just sort of like what role science communication has played in yeah. the, um, like the, just in the way that we ingest science and science fiction and the way that I think is, I think it's a great idea. I would, I would love to, to read that. Read yeah. That, yeah. Read we'll that give it a go, you know? And, uh, yeah. And it's kind of nice to work on a project with somebody else. Cause you do a, do a new first book is very daunting and I don't really know how to do it. And we both haven't written a book. So we're just, we're kind of buddies on this. So we're, yeah. we're going to see, we're going to see where it takes us. And, and it could be good. I, I basically wrote a book last year for the five-year plan. So it's like, I can do the words. It's just, planning it and putting it together and I, I i don't know what kind of challenges lie ahead but i'm i'm excited <laughs> well i since you're not going to tell us what uh, the event horizon telescope is uh shown a picture of i'm not going to tell you what writing a book is like okay okay um uh, uh so curious borg asks why is there a dog in a bowler hat with a mug sitting behind you oh that's um you remember the the famous um uh cartoon especially around 2016 around the elections where i think it's a commentary on global warming it's uh uh what's his name i forget his name but he did a kickstarter and one of the cartoons he wanted to turn into a stuffed toy and it's basically a uh, dog in a bowler hat sitting in his front room with a cup of tea and his his house is burning around him and he said this is fine this is fine Basically. yeah it's the this and is fine dog it's common it's a, yeah, it's a commentary about global warming it's a, it's a commentary about our political situation right now all this stuff's going on around us and there's people that are just very ambivalent about it so it's that kind of thing and so he's there with his mug he's also got his uh sticker i just voted from the last election so it's a it's a commentary on a commentary <laughs> that. that's awesome um and did you did you join the kickstarter i did yeah yeah so i got the first run on that little dog um yeah it's cute it, I, I forget the name of the writer ck green is it ck green or case casey green i think it is so if you go onto um onto twitter type in casey green and you'll be able to find his twitter handle there and he's he does uh some interesting little comics but that one really went viral so i thought i'd need that because 2016 was kind of a bizarre year <laughs> in, in both my homes yeah <laughs> in the uk and in the us so uh yeah uh, yeah well and and now the uk is uh who knows what the the uk is going to uh they don't know what they're doing as much as we don't know what they're doing no. I, I don't know what's going on it's very peculiar <laughs> see my my thought is if like if the uk exits then it's just going to be a mess. Like it's just going to be like, and, and, and if it's a hard Brexit, it's just going to be like really tough. And yeah. I think uh, I don't think I think a lot of people are are unprepared for the consequence. Just from a from a space side, I know that for example, um, there's the the various European contracts for various space missions are coming up, and now they're not allowing UK. Uh, contractors to bid on some of these projects until a more specific exit has been figured out. Right. Yeah. Because my sister, she's a microbiologist. She's like one of the world leaders in chlamydia research. Of nice. all things. So we kind of went in different directions with our careers, but she's still in research. She's a postgraduate fellow down in uh, Southampton University. 
and uh, she maintains the Chlamydia Biobank. So I'll give her a shout out. So basically they have loads of different strains of Chlamydia to be experimented on. So that's kind of fun. It sounds kind of icky for, for, a, for a space physicist. Um, I don't know. Yeah, it's, it's not my cup of tea, but uh, she really loves it. But she was saying, she, she actually went home yesterday and uh, she was saying the research community, they're in a state of flux because a good portion of research funds come from Europe. And if I think when I, um, when I was finishing my my master's actually is I was in Aberystwyth University which is on the west coast of Wales and I had the opportunity to go to um to go to Svalbard which is in the high arctic and I was researching at the time the aurora so you know the interaction between the the, the earth and the sun and it was an incredible experience I, I spent five months up there researching with uh, fellow Brits and you know students from all over the world and that was entirely funded by the I wouldn't have been able to go if it wasn't for that. And so now I know that the next generation of scientists, especially space scientists and you know, researchers who want to go into, into the sciences, um, they're not going to have that kind of opportunity anymore. And it's not just Svalbard. I mean, that's an extreme case. I mean, it's just like traveling throughout Europe, uh, you know, having opportunities to go to the International Space University. You know, those kind of things now are kind of blocked. And I don't, if it's a hard Brexit, I, I, I don't even want to, I, I can't even begin to guess what, what kind of hassle yeah. that's going to bring I'm, to research in the UK. Yeah, there are, uh, I mean, like, when, so much of science is done with the, by these gigantic consortiums now. And right. so a lot of funding for things like the European Southern Observatory and various telescopes and and CERN and things like that. There are instruments that are paid for by different countries, and then they're all bolted together. A lot of the times you'll see... You know, there'll be a, a mission from NASA that'll or the European Space Agency that'll include a lander from Britain and things like that. Mm -hmm. And it's just and now all of this is this is up in the air. So I would think, you know, I'm not sure if you're I mean, you talked about your sister and her compelling uh, icky research, but other other friends there sort of are just like wincing as this yeah. Brexit approaches. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's kind of I and mean, this was another thing we were kind of chatting about and everybody was like looking at the current administration in the states being kind of anti-science but that is a kind of temporary i mean it's it's horrible what, what the us is kind of facing with the, with the administration not to get too political but that is a four-year decision leaving the eu is potentially forever i mean that that's not like that's not up for re-election that's not up for being overthrown if we leave the eu the eu is going to make an example of and why shouldn't they? I mean, it's it's the most successful post-war peace organization ever. And for the UK to drop out of it, the reasons behind it were ridiculous. Um, the whole referendum was ill thought out. There was no real problem. We were, all intents and purposes, we were a, a strong nation. We've got our problems, absolutely. But now we've got some very big problems because we don't know what those problems are going to be. So I had some very interesting chats when I was back in the UK in in August, and there was this very, I mean, we're kind of caught in this, this period of austerity anyway, so there's very little public spending. And so I noticed that my neighborhood, I hadn't been back to the UK for two years, and I've noticed that, that like the streets were falling apart. There were like walls falling down. It was, it felt like, um, it didn't feel war-torn, obviously, it's not nearly that bad, but there was definitely a feeling of some sort of erosion to society, and there was this general feeling of sadness. When you spoke to people, even people who were voting for Brexit for whatever reason, they're not positive about the future. There's 
it's, it's going to be a very, very long period of hardship if the worst case scenario happens. And that's not even taking into account the things that we can't, we don't know what's going to happen politically in the UK. So yeah, I mean, just, just based on science funding itself, that's disastrous. So I can only imagine what it's going to be like for the economy and I'm not even an economist. So it's, uh, yeah, it's scary times. I mean, I, I can't escape back to the UK in respect to better politics over there. I've, I'm kind of, I'm going to stay in California. That's, yeah. about, that's about all I'm going to get, but I'm okay with that. Well, you can always come to Canada. You can get yeah. a, you know, you can get yeah. a gig with Triumph or, or the Perimeter Institute. Come on up to Canada. Yeah. Um, my, my wife's got family in Canada, so oh, why not? You know, I should really should make the move. Yeah. <laughs> if you do make it, come up and, and visit my island. I think you'll, you'll like it here. I'd love to. Um, so hit us with some more questions. Uh, I got a bunch more great questions from Arjone, but uh, but I would like to give some other. But they're great questions. Um, but I would like to give some other people a chance as well, because um, there was uh, I like this. Uh, there's a bunch like about fairly detailed information about uh, quantum physics that you probably don't want to tackle. Ooh. Well, yeah. Well. <laughs> depends on whether you just sat down and worked on a press release with the perimeter institute or not <laughs> no i haven't recently <laughs> i um, do like quantum physics though i mean that's a lot of fun yeah um uh there was a question here about yeah i can see people are already starting to get into okay so well arjun asks uh with so many ways to get into space today uh what would you like to see as a space experiment would you like to see a large project or cubesat type things so hmm. here you go. You get to um, uh, run a space mission. What would you uh, What would you like? Well, I I've always got a soft spot for Mars, but Mars gets a lot of attention. Um, I'd love to see. I'm all about you know manned exploration of, of well human exploration of the solar system. Um, uh, I would love to see some real some real international efforts being put into, you know, possibly landing an outpost on Mars. Uh, but that is like everybody's dream. But I would say the one thing that I would dream about seeing in my lifetime is seeing a submersible going into um, Europa's ocean. Because I want to know what's down there. So, yeah. and there's, there's all indications to suggest that all the ingredients for life are there as we know it. So I think we need to go there. And Enceladus as well around uh, Saturn, I mean, that's an appealing target as well because it's got less of a gravitational field. So we could send, I would like to send more missions to the outer solar system because I think there's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, even the, the ice giants like uh, Uranus and, and Neptune, I would love to know more about those planets. Um, I mean, it's really exciting with the New Horizons mission, went to the, you know, the, the Kuiper Belt. We saw, we've been seeing some amazing things. I mean, the big surprise for me was Pluto. I would love to see more missions out there because I think there's a hell of a lot more surprises. And it's basically an open book of, of evolution of our solar system. So. so so, so, just to be clear, you would like to explore everything? Everything. Robots yeah. everywhere. So, yeah. so I think I have joked about it on Twitter a few, a few weeks ago. I said, look, I, I've come to the point now where I just believe that we need to invest way more money in science. And the way NASA operates, they operate on a tiny budget compared to the, the federal budget. Same in Europe as well. I mean, Europe is funded very differently, but just the technologies and the science that space science brings humanity is very, very hard to, to, to explain because 
we wouldn't be where we are today if it wasn't for space science and our, our ability to explore, not just our fascination with exploring, but our ability to build these machines, to send these robots to some of the most extreme places in our solar system before any human sets foot or explores themselves. So yeah, space robots everywhere around every single planet, absolutely, including Pluto, of course. And I would just love to see, in my lifetime, I want to see humans on Mars um, because that's kind of dear to my heart in some ways. But also I want to see a submersible in the ocean of Europa or Enceladus, if that's whichever one's a better target. Um, but yeah, that would be that, that would be my dream team of missions. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I would go like if I had to like budget was no issue. Yeah, I would you... probably go with the Europa yeah. submarine. But I mean, it is it's such a complicated mission that you've got to land on the surface of Europa, be in the in the horrible radiation environment around Jupiter. You've got to be able to have a probe that can melt its way down through potentially dozens of kilometers of ice reeling behind a cable. And then it's got to find the the top of the actual liquid ocean and then deploy some kind of submersible that moves around inside the water searching for taking samples and then returning to yeah. deliver its its scientific data i mean there's a lot of moving parts there um yeah i mean alternatively we can just cut to the chase and just send humans there like in europa reports sure Have you seen that? yeah that movie? yeah um and i know there's Europa squid in there. So I, yeah. I think we need to send a manned mission to actually verify that. So, uh, it, well, we always say it's the European space whales. European space yeah, whales. They're, yeah, they're that's, not that's like those evil squids. They're harmless, gentle beasts that, you know, sing their mournful songs beneath kilometers of ice. Yeah, it sounds like something out of an Ian e. M., e. M. Banks novel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yeah, sounds good. <laughs> um, I, I'll dream that as well, Fraser. <laughs> but it, but if we want like more feasible, I'd like to see the Titan submersible. Yeah, right. Because yeah, then Titan. it's just right I always forget about Titan. Yeah, that's probably easier to land on as well. Exactly. So. Right. Easy yeah. to land on. Uh, you just drop it into the ammonia ocean. That's a you know having a uh, liquid that is an industrial solvent as your liquid to swim around in could be a little complicated but apart from that yeah yeah i, I think uh yeah titan would be good um I, I like going back to places where we've explored before that's why i'm yeah i'm so excited about mars all the time because you yeah. know what we're going to get another another curiosity rover there next year so i'm excited about that with a helicopter well. yeah the, the helicopter yeah that'll, that'll be cool i'm looking forward to that so, uh, so let's, uh, you know, gently, delicately go back and talk sort of po about politics a bit. I saw the chat lose its mind talking about Brexit. Um, yeah. So what do you think about the announcement from the White House that they want to put boots on the ground on the moon by 2024? Um, I, I, well, the thing, I've only been in science communication for a very short period. Oh, we're not going to get your answer. Oh. Your internet is, is it my internet? Is it your internet? It might be mine. Yeah. It's our first warm weather of the, of our very long summer. So it could be melting yeah. some cables, who knows? Um, yeah. Uh, so I, I've been loosely following it. I mean, the good thing about coming out of 
the daily cycle of news is that I can now pick and choose about what topics I cover and what topics I write about. And space politics was never my strong suit, but I'm always a little bit pessimistic now, especially when, you know, mass administrator goes up and says, okay, especially with the current administration, it's all about image. I don't think there's really any hope that the current um, plan that they're trying to push, and especially by what, the year 2023? 2024. 2024. Yeah. That is a tiny time frame to so be coming up with, okay, we're going to do this. This isn't the Apollo era. They're not committing that much cash. If they were, I'd be semi-excited. But then again, this time we do have like SpaceX. We have the right. commercial rockets that can do this. I don't see it happening because change of administrations always mixes things up. And I went through the whole Constellation program. I was really excited about yeah. it. The Ares rocket, I, when I saw that cigar rocket launch, I was like, wow, this is a new era. I mean, there's a whole lot of politics behind it. There's a whole lot of rubbish behind it. There's a whole lot of overspending behind it. But just having seen that rocket launch, I actually saw that was a, that could have been a catalyst for like a really strong um, government-led program until I saw the price tag. And I was yeah. like, okay, there's no way the US is ever going to fund that. But now I'm seeing like commercial rockets launch i mean literally in my backyard and of course in florida as well with um, with spacex uh spacex of course launches from vandenberg up the coast from me and so i've seen these rockets go up from from my house in los angeles so it's, it's quite a quite a sight and uh spacex always has this knack of launching them just the right time when they look like aliens i mean yeah <laughs> it's, it's, it's i always say I mean, that like if people you know like that's what ufo sightings would look like if they were really happening is is a million yeah. people posting a picture on Instagram. Yeah, when I saw, I think it was a, it wasn't the Falcon Heavy. It was, um, it was the Falcon Nine that launched. I think it was just a normal satellite. It and it was uh, the start of last year. I remember I was driving on um, the freeway heading north through Ventura County, and I was in the car with my wife and my dad. He was staying over for Christmas. It was just out. I think it was maybe in the New Year, and um, we were driving on the wrong freeway. And my dad points up and he said, "What's that?" because something in space you asked me and i was like i haven't got a clue and my and my checklist in my head went from the most absurd to the most rational and it was funny how i was doing it in real time but i was driving at the time but suddenly this this light, light object just kind of mushroomed into this wonderful contrail and i thought it was like a high altitude aircraft at first but i was like no it's too high is it a rocket? Is it like a, you know, as in a missile, like a nuclear war starting? Uh, I was thinking, no, that's that's absurdity. And stop thinking about that. Um, and then I was thinking, okay, is there a rocket launch now? And I was thinking, oh, that could be a SpaceX launch. And holy crap, I didn't know it was going to look that good. And it just kind of turned into this wonderful, um, this wonderful show. I was taking pictures of my iPhone. It was that good. It was like, I, I couldn't believe it. And everybody was pulling over on the freeway because everybody was so distracted. Um, so yeah, I mean, that's exciting to have this commercial energy behind getting stuff into space, and I and I think that is probably the future of making space more accessible is by driving down the cost, like what Elon Musk is doing. I mean, a lot of things I don't agree with what he's doing at the moment, but I do agree with his ultimate mission with SpaceX. Um, kind of lofty to say he's going to colonize Mars, which is kind of problematic in itself, saying colonizing anything. Um, but it, ultimately, he's providing uh, humanity with a with a mechanism to get into space. Um, so that stuff excites me. Whether NASA will be able to use that to their advantage, and perhaps they'll be able to turbocharge their race to the moon using commercial rockets, 
I don't see it happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm frustrated by it. And whenever I see you know, politicians especially talk about this stuff, I, I just I have a heavy dose of um, negativity with it. And that's why I don't really write about it because it's going to be horribly biased. Yeah, I mean, I definitely like to sort of be fairly delicate in dealing with it. I mean, part of it yeah. is, again, you know, having done this job for as long as I have and have seen just the whole process go in circles. We're going yeah. to the moon. Nope, we're not going to the moon. We're going we're going to Mars. Nope, we're not going to Mars. We're going back to the moon. Yeah. Nope, we're going to go to an asteroid. Nope, we're going um, back to uh, – uh, now we're going back to the moon and then on to Mars, whatever it is, right, and that the goals change. And so you can see that with each administration, they just overturn the, the plans of the previous administration. When you look at the at the the – the hardware, when you look at the space launch system, it is an offshoot. It is essentially a repurposed version of the Constellation, which is a repurposed version of the space shuttle, which is designed to make sure that the expertise and all of the contractors and all of the contracts and all of the work that's being done for the space shuttle continues on. I don't yeah. think there's a lot of people at this point that would disagree with the statement that, that there's something wrong with the way this is working and yeah. what the solution is with the space launch system and all that. And then on the flip side, right? And then the flip side, you look at what's happening with SpaceX and Blue Origin, and even the Vulcan rocket coming from ULA and some of these smaller launch providers. Like there's a lot of really exciting things that are happening at the same time. Yeah. And so it, it does feel like a Gordian knot now where no one can make any progress the hardware is not able to adapt at the pace that the administrations are changing their goals yeah. and that no one is going to go anywhere for ever. Right. And, yeah. and so there's gotta be some other solution. And so I personally do not disagree with let's go back to the moon. Like fine, pick a goal, whatever, you know, it's not the goal that I would choose. Yeah, right. Stick to it. But, and stick to it and then, and then come up with a solution to be able to do it. As long as you fund it appropriately and as long as you make sure it's safe. Yeah. And, and I think it's the funding it appropriately is, has not necessarily been acknowledged when you look at the kind of budget. Like it just – it cost a mountain of money to go to the moon back in the Apollo era, like 10 times yeah. as much as, as is being spent today um, yeah. matched with – the safety concerns like there's just nothing is ready to go today to be safe and so if it's going to be a race if it's going to be a sprint then safety is going to be the thing that's going to take the a back seat and that's nobody wants nobody wants more astronauts to die in this process to happen so yeah especially for like what would be what could be a canceled program so it's like we're going to race to the moon what happens if there's one accident or what happens if we didn't do proper checks i mean space is inherently dangerous and you are going to have an elevated risk by doing these things but you have to also make sure your explorers are as safe as humanly possible so it doesn't make sense to say okay in the next five years we're going to race to the moon and i'm not opposed to the moon i mean it's the nearest thing yeah nearest yeah pick a thing fine go to the moon I mean, set up a base on the moon, that'd be fantastic. Like, you know, have you know, the space station. I mean, that's a great example of, you know, governments coming together and in international collaboration. I think that's probably the key when it comes to our future in space, if government agencies are still going to spearhead it. Um, it's going to be international collaboration because we've proven it can work with the International yeah. Space Station. Sure, 
there's a lot of critics about the International Space Station, but all the we actually have permanent human presence in space. Yeah, it's literally just above our atmosphere, but it's close. It's, it's it, we, we are we are getting there. We're developing the technologies that we can possibly then send humans to to spend more time on the moon. And the moon is in a very interesting place. We can do great science there, and and it's our natural satellite is sitting there for just for us to you know to send humans to live um, for long periods of time. We can do it. The technology is there. The funding isn't. And I would say we need another international collaboration with NASA, with all their international partners, to make that happen. Um, I don't think the money is there for it. Yeah. And I think that um, sending humans back to the moon just to say we've done it again doesn't make a whole world of sense. Right. Um, so if we're going to go back, we're going to go back to stay. But if you're going to say that, you need to actually make sure there's decades of funding available, or at least some semblance of a mechanism in place where they can generate funds to do that. Yeah, because uh, taxpayers just can't afford that kind of mission. It has to have some sort of commercial impetus as well. I mean, it's not going to be um, a Mars One thing because right. that was just right. That went out, that went out of business. That went bankrupt. Yeah, yeah, that was painful to watch, and, yeah. and it went down in a uh, burning mess. But um, so we can't have things like that. We, what we need is more. Um, more SpaceX's. We need we need to solve short-term problems, but with an overarching goal. And so basically Elon Musk, that was his whole thing when he was blowing up rockets in, in the South Pacific one, 2008. That's only 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So it's like we've come a long way. Just this one company has come a long way and they're profitable. Yeah. Yeah, they are profitable, yeah. Yes. So, 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 you know, they are, so obviously the model does work. And we're seeing more and more commercial entities coming around. And they're seeing that model as a way of making money in space. And what it comes down to is the bottom line. It's like if they can make money by launching stuff in space, if launching humans in space. I mean, look, we've got um, uh, uh, Richard Branson with with Virgin Galactic. I mean, I'm kind of ambivalent about going on suborbital flights, but ultimately, I'd say more stuff. The more stuff we do in space, and more different, all the different sectors. You know, whether it's tourism, whether it's you know, cheaper. Um, cargo launches or whether it's getting people to the space station all these things need to be done and i think we need to build this infrastructure in space to actually make space affordable then we can make the next step spending longer on the moon then ultimately going to mars but i don't see it happening in the next 10 20 years yeah realistically it's definitely not going to happen in the next four or five that's just you you don't see feet on the moon in the next five years no no no, I don't think uh, I do well, either. Uh, Ch China might. I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at I'm just looking at NASA. I mean, yeah, China just yeah, always yeah. surprises. So it's like yeah. that. You know, when they have a mission, they just throw their money behind it and do it. But it's going to be like the Apollo mode. Yeah, it's the benefits necessary. of a central controlled culture, yeah. right? Government. There is that. Yeah. <laughs> say, we're all going to the moon now. Let's go. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. You know, don't worry about the the downsides and the uh, you know political yeah. ramifications yeah it's a it's a it's a fascinating thing and i i feel i mean i don't have any concrete knowledge of this but it feels to me like like people are concerned enough that the chinese are pretty serious about sending humans to the moon i mean they've got astronauts they're testing out their technology for going to the moon you know they're working on something that's going to be like that it could very well be that that's sort of the time horizon that they're starting to look at is the next five to 10 years. And so the yeah. goal is beat them to the moon, which, which is a terrible reason to, to do that. Right. 
Yeah, it's, I, I, I can even understand the, the space race, the Apollo era. I can get that because A, we hadn't been to the moon before. We literally broke barriers within a very, very short period of time. No matter the reasons behind it, it was basically a race behind between the US and Russia. Now, it's not a race because that's kind of been done. So if you're just going to go there to beat China, well, you kind of beat them. 50 years ago. Yeah, so yeah, you know what? You already um, won. Yeah, yeah, no, ma yeah. You know, no matter how quickly, how well they get to the moon, yeah. you can note that you already beat them. Yeah, I wish I was a politician because I'd say, okay, so it's time to race to Mars yeah. and then to see who wants to race with me. <laughs> <laughs> we'll, we'll just see. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah, so, I, I, I posted on, on Twitter uh, a couple of days ago. I'm like, you know what would be a good challenge would be I want to see someone perfect artificial gravity in space. Yeah, that's the thing that I want to see. I want to see some kind of rotating thing in space because now you've got artificial gravity. Um, yeah. Why go into another gravity well when you could just, you know, if you made it out of Earth's gravity well, just stay in space. So yeah, we all want our two thousand one space odyssey. Yeah, yeah, I want it's, to exactly. It's gonna happen. Yeah, it's I definitely want... gonna happen at some point. I, I, but again, I just like. I want it to happen in my lifetime. I want to see it happen. Yeah, I mean, I don't really care too much about after I'm gone. I want yeah. to see it, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, and I think, you know, if SpaceX does get the Starship rolling, one of the things the Starship will be able to do is launch off the Earth, fly to the moon, land on the moon, go for a little walk, come back right, onto yeah. your spaceship, and fly back to Earth. Like, it's just, just as one of its missions just right out of the gate. Yeah. So and and all of that was predicted by science fiction. We always go back to science fiction. Yeah. And it's like, well, get, let's get our inspiration from science fiction. What would, what would our you know Babylon Five friends do? I mean, you know, what what kind of technologies do they have? I mean, it's one thing saying you know Star Trek and you know want warp speed and stuff. That's not going to happen. Uh, certainly not within our foreseeable future. But there's certain components that could happen. I mean, just look at the Martian. And there was some very decent uses of technology there that is well within our grasp. Most of it is just funding and political will. And I get annoyed by that because if I was a politician, I'd make it happen. I'd get the funding to do it because that's how enthusiastic I am about it. But unfortunately, the world isn't us. The world is, the world is a very vast and diverse and interesting place. There were not all space enthusiasts, which actually, I, I want to change one mind at a time. Uh, Evolution Inc. <laughs> is asking, are you the guy who invented the O'Neill cylinder? No, no, I wish I was. He's not even a family member. So. No, Gerard, Gerard <laughs> O'Neill is not a family member? No, he's not. He's not a great uncle or anything. No, it sucks. <laughs> have you, uh, have you I, really I have you dug into this? Have you looked? <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, no, he's, he's nothing to do with me. <laughs> um, and A.V. Scott and Flowers is saying that we should start a race to the Sagittarius A black hole. Can you confirm or deny if that's a good idea? <laughs> uh, well, no, it's a bad idea. Okay, all right. <laughs> it would take too long. <laughs> I, just, I was just looking some kind of, you know, inside knowledge about what's going to happen on April 10th, and that's the yeah. way. Yeah, the ESO actually built a rocket to take us to the black hole. There you now, go. Scoop. Now, that's another thing. I mean, it's like, what would that thing look like, yeah. you know, up close? I mean, we've kind of, a, again, science fiction, you know, yeah. uh, interstellar, we kind of have an idea about what it's going to look like. And so when the first images do come in from uh, the Event Horizon Telescope, it's going to hopefully confirm or deny some of these assumptions that we've made. So, again, we are living in the future. We don't need flying cars. A couple of people have wondered, uh, are you, uh, have you ever met uh, Matt O'Dowd from PBS Space Time? 
yes, I have. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Planetary Society. Yeah. 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 You know. Yeah. You know. You guys are like virtual twins, right? Ready? Yeah. Yeah. PBS. You should watch it again. Yeah. I mean, he's got an Australian <laughs> accent. Well, you got an English accent, but apart they're, from that, they're pretty much the same. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I've got my Canadian accent. So really, we're all just the, we're all we're all the same. Uh, well, uh, we're out of time, Ian. It was uh, a pleasure to hang out with you and, and catch up. Uh, and people got to watch us uh, hang out, uh, which is yeah. always fun. Um, so what's the thing that you're working on right now and, and people can find out more? Yeah, so I mean, always check in on astroengine.com. That's astroengine, one word, dot com. Um, I usually post things on there fairly regularly. I recently posted about Brian the Bat. Do you remember? Yes, I remember. Bat? Yeah, you broke the ten, story. Ten, ten, ten years. Ten years. Ten whole years. I was, and it was random. I just checked the date and I was like, whoa, it's been ten years. So I wrote a whole thing about that. So you can catch up with Brian and why we were so geeky ten years ago. Um, so yeah, astroengine.com. Always check out my Twitter. I'm very chatty on Twitter. Uh, check out. Um, Astro Engine at Astro Engine, um, and yeah, and then the big, big uh, thing that's happening really for me right now. I'm writing stuff for the University of Waterloo for April 10th. For April so 10th, whatever's going to happen. Wake the, up early, Fraser. The, the human mission to <laughs> the supermassive black hole. The human mission. Yeah, we're sending Matthew McConaughey to the black hole. That is the big announcement. Right. I'm very excited. That's that's really that's some big news. I'm yeah. really glad we could report it here. Well, Ian, thank you so much. <laughs> Pleasure hanging out with you. Thanks everyone thank for you. watching. Thanks to the mods. Thanks to well, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll see you all uh, next week. Uh, new episode dropping soon. Stay tuned. All about the future of planet hunting. All right. Thanks everyone. <laughs>